When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The new fully electric Audi e-tron GT. Enjoy the breathtaking performance and design of the future of electric mobility from Audi. With Quattro-inspired flared wheel arches and matrix design LED headlights, every element has been carefully considered and selected to help deliver a thrilling drive. And with an acceleration of 0 to 100 kilometers per hour in 4.1 seconds, the Audi e-tron GT is performance electrified. Start the future now and visit audi.ca to learn more. All across Canada, government debt has been growing during the pandemic, and it's going to grow more. I'm Gabe Friedman, and this week on Down to Business, I'm joined by Ian Lee, Associate Professor of Management at Carleton University's Spratt School of Business. Lee's been outspoken in his belief that he thinks inflation is coming, and he gave a passionate interview about the consequences of government debt and inflation. Now, many economists may disagree with him on some of his points, and so we talked about that too. As always, the interviews are edited for clarity and brevity. Ian Lee, thank you so much for joining me on Down to Business. Uh, it's my pleasure, Gabe. I wanted to talk to you about what's been going on with the economy. I think there's a lot of fears about the economy, but a lot of people are doing fine. Some people, some businesses are doing really poorly. Can you just describe a little bit about what you think are the sort of hallmarks of the economy right now? I would love to. I strongly disagree with the interpretation, uh, the pronouncements, if you will, uh, by um, the leaders of the government of Canada. I'm referring to the prime minister and the finance minister. And I'm not a partisan. I don't belong to any political party. I do not donate to any political party. But from the very beginning, and I'm talking March of 2020, people were constantly referencing the 2008-9 recession. But this was not a recession in any ordinary sense of the word. First and foremost, a recession is two consecutive quarters of negative GDP growth. And we simply didn't have two consecutive quarters of negative GDP growth. Secondly, and what made it profoundly different from any other past uh, economic, call it downturn, this economic hit, and I'm talking March 2020, was first off government mandated for good reasons. I get that. But still, it wasn't an organic downturn where a long economic cycle had just come to its natural end. This was government-induced head-to-toe. Everybody go home, stay home, do not go to work. Well, that's a very different kettle of fish. Thirdly, 90% of the jobs of GDP were not really affected. 10% were annihilated. We know who was annihilated. Small business, bars, restaurants, barbershops, hair salons, anything, a lot of human touch were the most devastated of all. To Just to play devil's advocate here for a minute, yes, it was government mandated, but this is the policy the government came up with and a lot of people supported. It's not clear when it's going to end, right? Even still, here we are more than a year into it. Still no one knows when this will, will all get out of this. Are we not in a period of economic decline? What I'm trying to say, what I'm, my, my larger argument is, this idea that vast numbers of Canadians were wiped out, 
pushed over the cliff, almost reduced eating cat food and dog food, I'm being colorful to get my point across, was not true. If you look at the actual unemployment numbers, at the very worst of the depths of the depths of this alleged recession, we hit 15% unemployment. If you say, oh my God, 15%, that meant 85% were working. Well, still the highest in years though, right? Yes, it was. And I'm not trivializing the 15. I am saying that this idea that it required this massive stimulus, massive investment to deal with these massive numbers of Canadians who have been annihilated by the, by the uh, forced lockdown was simply not true. There were 15% that were really hit very, very hard. And so my overarching criticism, we overstimulated and we overspent and we were, and the numbers are support me. The stats can and OECD numbers came out. Only two countries saw incomes go up, not down, up, U.S. and Canada. If you look at the other high-income countries, Germany, not a poor country, uh, France, their GDP went down per person and their income went down per person. In Canada and the U.S., because we poured so much money that incomes actually went up while GDP was going down, which is truly remarkable. Never happened before. But it doesn't seem like a bad thing. I mean, people want their incomes to go up. Well, bad. I mean, if you think that going deep, deep, deep into debt to put $200 billion of money into people's bank accounts in the bank is a good policy, great. But I, I call it squandering. I wouldn't use the word bad. My critical analysis is we squandered scarce public resources. And it's not that the government's going broke. I don't believe that. Government account is not going to fail. But we used up runway. We used up flexibility and we overstimulated and we gave too much money to businesses and people that didn't need help. Right. Your argument is not that we shouldn't be taking out any money. Your argument is that we should have been putting it to a more productive use. Exactly. If they had said, you know what, we're going to use this opportunity, our, our national road system, our, our Trans-Canada Highway needs to be double-tracked all the way across the country. It's the backbone of trucking, which delivers 85% of all the goods in Canada. We've got to increase our pipelines, our airports. Okay, fine. But they didn't. What we did is we put most of it into income redistribution. And, and that's fine if those people needed to help, except that we now know we gave a lot of money, pushed a lot of money out the door to people that didn't need it. And to the government's response that, well, we didn't really know who to give it to, that is just absolute nonsense. Canada Revenue Agency has awesome data on individual Canadians. We could have done a targeted approach, but it would have not allowed the opportunity to stand up every day before the microphone with yet another deliverable or announceable of yet another program with an alphabet soup name to give you lots of media credit. It wouldn't have given you a political benefit, but it could have been very surgically targeted to those who needed help. Right. And so the concern is that we borrowed all this money. What's the penalty? Why should we be so careful about this? A lot of people, I think, don't know. Here's why. Fiscal conservative friends don't like what I'm about to say, but the federal government is going to be fine. It has a printing press, the central bank, and they can literally print money. And we were not heavily indebted before we went into the pandemic. We were at 30% debt to GDP. And even now at 50 or 55, uh, it's not that bad. And if that was the only governing Canada and the only borrowing, I would have no problem whatsoever. The problem is the provincial governments and the parliamentary budget office has been publishing an excellent statistical report once a year for the last three years. PBO uh, repeatedly shows most, not all, are fiscally 
unsustainable in the medium term. None of them have a printing press. They don't have a Bank of Canada. They also are carrying the lion's share of our most expensive programs. What are they? Income supports, healthcare, education. Healthcare alone is approaching 50% of provincial spending across Canada, and it's going to get way, way worse because we're going from 12% over 65 years of age to 25%. And the data from CAIHI, the Canadians through the Health Information, shows empirically that the expenditure consumed of healthcare annually when you turn 65 skyrockets. Right. You're saying our healthcare costs are going to go up because we're aging. And so exactly. we, they shouldn't, the provinces shouldn't have borrowed the way they should have. It's fine for the federal government. I'm not even saying that. What I'm saying is that the federal government, whether it wants to be or not, is de facto the guarantor of every provincial government. So when they compute the total indebtedness of a country, they conclude federal, provincial, and municipal. And when you look at the total government debt as a percentage of GDP, it's no longer the very modest 50%. We're way up there, around 110%. We are in the upper third of indebted European countries. And that trend is only going to get worse because of the provinces. So what I'm trying to say is we have problems ahead of us and we squandered a lot of money for a very relatively low payoff. And so we reduced our wiggle room. Then I don't think that's strategic or prudent. Mm. And so you've been vocal that you have this fear that all this debt is going to lead to inflation. Yes. Can you talk a little bit about you know what you think is going to happen? Yeah. Most people are saying, look at all that government borrowing is going to lead to inflation. That's not where I'm actually coming from. I'm looking at uh, stuff that's been published and there's this 80 years old guy and he was in the Bank of England for like 30 years and, be and then he became a professor at uh, LSE. Right. You're talking about Charles Goodhart, uh, the London School of Economics. And he uh, has a new book out and arguing that the unprecedentedly low interest rates of the last 15 to 20 years never been that low in British history or American history in 500 years. Never. And that's coming to an end. And he argues it was that low because it was a unique period in time and the inflation was incredibly low because of a couple of factors. One was that the boomers around the world were in their peak earning years, paying down debt, running up lots of investment income and savings. And so there was a global glut of savings. At the same time this was going on, this was the 90s and the aught decade, the Soviet Union collapsed and hundreds of millions of consumers uh, and workers from the former Soviet system essentially joined the international global economy providing cheap labor, which guess what? Drove prices down, kept inflation down. At the same time, China joined the global economy in 1992-3, and that brought another 1.4 or 1.3 billion people into the global system that also kept a cap on wages because their wages were really dirt cheap. So this produced on the supply side of workers, millions and millions of new workers to keep wages down really low, which kept inflation down. And on the supply side of, rough, of savings, the boomers were in their peak years, and those two together created the lowest rates ever in human history. And he's arguing, and I agree completely, that that is coming to an end. The boomers are moving into retirement, and there's all kinds of excellent data that shows that when you go into your senior years, you start to dis-save, which just means you start to run down your savings because they start to go and travel around the world to their bucket lists, and also they go into homes, which are very expensive. And there's no new Soviet Union collapsing or no new China coming in that's going to 
uh, create a glut of workers that's going to keep prices down. And then you, along comes this pandemic, and that leads to my next point, is that the decision makers, and I'm talking in Ottawa and in Washington, have consistently underestimated the resilience of the economy. And they didn't understand that the economy wasn't sick. It was only locked down by government edict, but it was still waiting, roaring to go. But so back to back to this issue of inflation, though. Right. There are a lot of people who are quite concerned about deflation, even. Um, I, I, I'm, I'm aware that they central bankers, for example, and are, are concerned about about uh, deflation. I'm, I'm aware of that. And yet, when you look at the resilience in the economy, you look at the money in the bank accounts. Okay, I, I'm talking in the central bank. That they're just. Uh, gargantuan amounts of money, almost 10% of Canadian GDP. And what I'm arguing is that there is a pent-up demand waiting to roar. And the only reason that we aren't out there spending isn't because we're lying flat on our back, financially speaking. It's because we're, most of us are terrified to go out because we're worried about getting contracting the virus. And the moment you allay that fear, then it is happy days are here again. A, we're already seeing it. I mean, literally after the first lockdown, I could barely find a spot on the part in the Home Depot parking lot. I use that as my proxy, you know. And then you see boat sales and swimming pool sales, hundred thousand dollar swimming pool sales, and you know, and the house prices going. All you look at any sector of large ticket consumer goods, and they're just exploding, and it's contradicting empirically what the central bankers and the finance officials are saying. Like, if there's a fear of deflation, then it's got to show up in the data. And it's not showing up in the data. Yeah, so we did see some inflation this week. Yeah. But people think it's temporary. But more than that, the inflation's a bit weird. It has disproportionate impacts. Some tech companies, because they have low input costs, actually benefit because they can raise prices more than their costs rise. So what do you think the sort of worst effects of it will be? Inflation is the enemy of savings. Why? I remember I remember in the 70s, you knew if you bought something, it was going to, if you didn't buy it, it was going to go up another 5 or 10% before you turned around. I knew if I didn't buy a house in 1976, it would go up another 10% the next year. So there was no point saving. A saving was a, a, a crazy. It was irrational. It creates that almost casino uh, culture mentality where I've got to rush out and borrow money and buy something before the price goes up. It encourages speculation. It encourages borrowing. It encourages consumption. And if you look at developing countries, because I've had the great uh, privilege or opportunity in the last 30 years to teach around the world in developing countries. And so quite a few of these countries I taught in were going through very serious inflation times, one of them being Argentina. First off, it hurts low-income people more than high-income people, because high-income people have ways to look after themselves, to protect themselves. And Secondly, it hurts the people on fixed incomes the most, which typically was pensions. Inflation is really unfair. It's very socially unjust. It hits the lowest income and the marginal people the most. From a business point of view, it's hostile to investment because it doesn't encourage savings. You know, and but just if I go back very quickly, because I realize I'm criticizing the central bankers on this and the, the Federal Reserve and the and the Treasury, US Treasury model for forecasting. 
has three fundamental variables that they're quoting. So they look at the economy and say, well, we've got a loose labor market, uh, lots of labor, and commodity prices are stable, and inflationary expectations are anchored. Well, I use those very same variables they're using, and I, I look at the data, and I come to the opposite conclusion. They have very tight labor markets because, first off, partly because they poured trillions, literally, into the market to subsidize people. So there's lots of people. I talk to contractors. They're finding it almost impossible to get workers. So this myth of the uh, slack labor market with lots of uh, unused capacity is not the reality. Then you look at commodity prices, and my goodness me, they use import prices, not commodity, but commodities are a big part of import. There's no question that the commodity prices have just taken off, and I don't just mean lumber. You know, you look at copper, you look at other commodity prices, they're going up way beyond the, the, the 2% baseline. And and then the so-called inflationary expectations, I think that they're eroding. And I'm talking in the consumers because they're seeing prices going up and, you know, housing prices going through the roof. They're going up. And I'm saying the data suggests inflation in their defined three core variables, labor markets, import prices, and consumer psychology of inflation. I think the market's tighter than a drum. And I think uh, import prices are going up, including commodities. And I think in the, the expectation of prices is increasing. So we don't have anchor expectation of 2% inflation. So I look at the three variables. I'm disagreeing with them on their interpretation of the data. Well, it's going to be very interesting. And, you know, hopefully this will work out all right. But I, I really appreciate you coming on the show to offer your thoughts on all these things and have a spirited discussion of it. Uh, my great pleasure, Gabe. That was Ian Lee, Associate Professor of Management at Carleton University's Scott School of Business. This week's episode of Down to Business was made possible by a hardworking team with music and production by Bryce Hall, editing by Yadula Hussein, and web support by Pamela Heaven. You can support us by rating us and sharing an episode with a friend. I'm Gabe Friedman, and until next week, find all your business news at financialpost.com.